Welcome to The Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bala Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are excited to be joined by Devin Watson. Devin is the Executive Vice President of Global Banking and Chief Marketing Officer at Diebold Nextdorf. Within his organization, he is also responsible for business development and acquisitions. In my conversation with Devin, we discuss how Diebold Nextdorf evaluates potential acquisitions and why a good strategic fit is critical. Yeah, Bela, this is, I'm excited for this conversation. We both have known Devin for a long time, and he's a super smart guy and sees things uh, that other people don't see. He's got this great vision. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say about acquisitions and what happens when an entrepreneur um, chooses to get bought by a big company rather than go the venture capital route, for instance. So I think with that, let's move to the interview Hello, with Devin Hello, today's Watson. guest is Devin Watson. He works for Diebold Nixdorf. And he is the Executive Vice President, Global Banking, and Chief Marketing Officer there. Welcome to the podcast, Devin. And uh, Mike Wasserman is also here. So between the three of us, uh, we will uh, have a conversation with Devin about sort of his experiences and uh, a little bit about uh, acquisitions. And he's been through a few of them there at Diebold. And uh, we'll talk about that as the segment for this particular uh, podcast. So, Devin, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about Diebold Nextdorf? You betcha. So first thing is uh, we say Diebold Nextdorf because when your brand is over 160 years old, you never say die anymore. Um, <laughs> Thank so you. We've, we've been around a, a long time. Uh, always in the financial services industry, but innovating and changing the business substantially. Uh, so this was initially a safe company uh, that kind of got its uh, international start by surviving the great Chicago fire. And one of the few things standing was a bunch of Diebold safes. Uh, and that put us kind of on a road to prominence. At this point, we are a about a $4 billion global company. We have over 20,000 employees. We operate in around 100 countries around the world. And uh, most of your listeners will have used something that we made today, probably. Uh, we make many of the ATMs that you see, a lot of the banking software behind it, a lot of self-checkout devices that you see at the grocery store, self-checkout devices that you see at the airport, uh, point-of-sale devices that you see when you go shopping. So our mission in life is to, to automate the way people bank and shop all around the world. Uh, excellent. That's great. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, so I've never had the same job twice. Uh, I've been, I've been in sales. I've been in product management. I've been in venture capital. I've led innovation. I've been in strategy. Uh, I've run operations for different parts of, of companies. Uh, I've run marketing, real estate, cost programs, IT, ERP. Uh, so I, I consider myself to hopefully be turning out to be fairly uh, an all-around athlete for business, if you will. Uh, I've had the luck to be kind of on each side of growing and acquiring companies. So I've been an entrepreneur starting my own software company. Uh, which, Bela, I might remind you, I pitched you for capital and you shot me down uh, brutally. Uh, 
I've been a venture capitalist, uh, which was a fantastic uh, several years of my career, learning about different businesses uh, from the investor standpoint. And then I've spent the last nearly 10 years at uh, a large corporation uh, where I've been the acquirer and integrator uh, of two businesses over the last few years. That's great. So I'd like to talk a little bit about acquiring and and sort of, uh, you know, a little bit about that process. And I think integration is also a great thing to talk about as well. So to start with, uh, what what sort of, how does a company get into your sweet spot, right? So how, or how do they pop up on your radar screen? Sort of what do they need to be uh, for, for you to sort of, you know, knock on the door and say, hey, you know, we'd like to talk to you? Yeah, that's a... That's a tough question to answer because um, hunting for an acquisition is, uh, I would say, company dependent, and the lens of the acquirer can be wildly different. Um, you know, if I look at how a software company would hunt for an acquisition, uh, probably depending in it even depends on uh, how that uh, software company is structured. Right. If they're owned by the management team, they might be looking for a company that generates good free cash flow. And that would uh, a profitable business would, would get you on their radar. If they're owned by private equity, they're going to be most likely looking for growth at all costs. And that trajectory is going to be the main driver of, of what's interesting to them. As a large company, uh, there's a few different acquisition plays. Um, you know, some of them are around, you know, market share, uh, you know, trying to consolidate a marketplace. That was a one type of acquisition that, that I've been a part of. Those are usually pretty darn big though, right? You're usually looking for something that's half to equal your size. Uh, if you're looking at, um, to acquire more of a startup, then the lens all of a sudden shifts out to the you know second and third uh, kind of range of the innovation curve, right? Then we start hunting for what's the next thing that's going to take me into the future, right? Yeah, very good. So uh, when you look at let's say the startup phase, earlier stage companies, so so not somebody half your size or you know as large as you are but somebody that has maybe some unique technology you're looking for, or maybe they have a unique set of customers that you'd like to get after, right? So they have to have something that's of value to you, right? Uh, what are some of the various different things that you look for there? Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure, sure. Uh, so a technological advantage is, is super important. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean patents and stuff like that, because that's increasingly murky and in the software realm, getting more and more questionable about how applicable it is. Uh, but it needs to be something where that, whatever that secret sauce is, either how they run the business, how they build the product, et cetera, is pretty darn hard to replicate and pretty differentiated compared to other substitutes, right? And that's, that's the thing that we're really looking for is something that we couldn't build ourselves quicker. Right. Uh, once you once you kind of have that, I'd say, beginning ingredient um, proof of product market fit is by far the most compelling item. So if we can see that there are a you know core of very passionate customers 
who are so impressed by this value proposition that they're willing to, you know, pay more for it, that they're willing to speak about it, right? Being a public reference, things like that, that they're willing to tell other companies like, hey, this thing is so great, you have to get one too. Um, those sort of things show us that there's something of value that we can then put through our machine to grow it. So again, with the lens being on a, on a startup, if you went from 2 million to 4 million last year, interesting, but I'm much more interested. You have five customers that are each 70% gross margin, right? They're each spending a, a meaningful amount of money with you. And the, the profile of that customer fits my existing customer list because I don't care about going from two to five to six. I want to go take your technology and your uh, customers that are evangelists, and I want to go to 10, 30, 50, 100. Right? And I think that's one of the, the things that sometimes, you know, startups, it's good to always, you know, run a, run a profitable business, for sure. Run a real company, uh, have that discipline around the financials. But we, being the large company, can usually scale that a hell of a lot faster, right? Because we're going to put it through 400, 500 sales reps, not 10, right, et cetera. So we're looking for those indicators that say we can now scale this thing really, really quickly. Because that's also how we pay for the mathematics of an acquisition is scaling. Yep. And that's, is that how you compete? Because right, I imagine you compete with, with private equity and with VCs at some level, right? And so do you have to kind of make a pitch to the founders that they should take money from you, right? Rather than a private equity or a VC company, you might not have the big name, right? It might not be as sexy, um, but you can actually help them achieve their goals faster. Are there some other tricks that you yeah. use? That tricks is the wrong word, but some other kind of selling points that you use, why they should take an investment from you rather than a, a more glitzy source? Yeah. So, um, at least for us, we, we look at it as a, as a full acquisition. Um, just to, I want to answer your question accurately. Um, there's, there are corporations that would look at making an investment in that company, right? As a corporate venture capital, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the decision that, that I've been a part of a few times with, with founders is sell to an acquirer or go to private equity or to venture capital because you think you can continue to grow to something more and more profitable or, or to a bigger and bigger exit, right? And then they have this fork in the road. You know, do we sell to a corporation now and sell out or do we keep building this thing on our own for the next several years, either under the hood of a private equity company or with, you know, venture capital? And, you know, having, having been in, in multiple startups, uh, and having a lot of empathy for how hard that is. The advice I give um, is take the money and run, right? I don't remember who saying that. Was it Johnny Cash? Whoever. Whoever had yeah, that remember. song, they were yeah. wrong. Take the money and run. There are so many things that can go wrong on the path to an exit. It is unbelievable. Um, and if you go down the path of, of venture capital or private equity, it is hard to get chips off the table, but you can do that. You can negotiate some things, take a little bit of your value off the table to 
you know, provide some security for, for what you've done. Uh, but you won't get the full monetization because uh, as Bela has, has often said, venture capital means you're now on a train and it is headed one direction and it's toward a, towards a bigger exit. And if you mess that up, you're probably going to lose your ticket to be on the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? um, so it takes you down a very specific path, whereas, you know, selling to a, a large acquirer kind of brings you to the, the end of that, that particular entrepreneurial journey. Um, and I've, I've actually had, I've had an entrepreneur, uh, turn us down for an, for an acquisition and, and I've provided the same advice, you know, take the money and run because the market changes, the, the, the dynamics of the companies you're competing with is going to change every year. And unless you're on a trajectory where you truly believe in your heart that you can navigate that and beat everybody, especially in the financial technology world, things kind of coalesce towards the biggest players. Um, and three years later, they got crushed by another large competitor, right? So through my lens, a big company acquisition is a fantastic outcome. That's great. Cause I don't know that that's even the dominant business school logic, right? right. But it totally, your logic totally makes sense to me. You know? Well, and, and, and run the math from, from a founder's point of view, right? So, uh, you know, you build a business, you still own whatever, 10% of it, 50% of it. And a large company offers you $50 million to acquire the business. It's a great outcome. It's a lot of money. It's life-changing. It's a fantastic result of all the hard work. Uh, if you take venture capital, right, the, the size of most of today's funds means that they have to deploy a certain amount of capital into your business. You take that certain amount of capital multiplied by their ownership stake and then multiplied by their, uh, the map of what will make a good exit for them. And you're now talking about swinging for the fences, right? You're not talking about a, a good exit any longer being $50 million, a good exit now is a billion dollars. Billion. You're a unicorn. Yep. yep. And then run the math on how many exits happen in the billions. Not very many. How many mm-hmm. exits happen in the tens of millions? Tons. Uh, so that's why I say you really have to be a true believer to want to extend into that runway where the only good outcome is now massive because the risk goes up. Yep, That's great advice. Yep. Great advice, Devin. So let me ask you a question uh, and sort of leading in towards the integration of an acquisition and what you kind of go through. Uh, but as, as preparing for that, what do you sort of look for in the leadership team and in the entrepreneur? What what element does that play in, in considering an acquisition? Uh, so, so maybe I'll break down a few parts of the acquisition kind of courtship dance, right? Um, so there's, you know, several stages of this where, you know, we get under various levels of legal documentation and and start looking at things. Um, the first thing is, is there will be tons of time spent on the product market fit question. Um, if the acquirer really knows what they're doing, that's, that's by far the most important thing. Uh, because we'll, we'll be really trying to understand that if we, that, we can scale this thing by putting it into our engine. Um, 
in terms of the the and and then obviously a lot of technology due diligence right we're going to be looking for is there actually something else underneath the hood of this technology that makes it work is it something else repackaged etc is it truly really hard to to recreate uh you know is your quote unquote AI function actually just a big pile of if then else statements that anybody else could figure out in three months, right? Uh, separating the, the marketing from the real capability. Um, when it comes to the management team, you know, there's a, a, a fun saying that sometimes entrepreneurs make terrible employees, uh, and <laughs> which I've used on myself as well. Uh, but that's actually something that helps a big company, right, is bringing in a team that still has that entrepreneurial spirit, can shake things up deliberately so that you start to run a portion of your business in a different way. So you're looking for folks to kind of fit the uh, the culture of your company, but not too closely because you do want to shake things up a bit. Otherwise, you just do it yourself. Um, you're also looking for uh, synergy, which is a fancy business school way of saying how many uh, people can I fire and how much cost can I get rid of when I buy this thing? Uh, so that's, you know, just quite frankly, the other thing that an acquirer is going to look at, they're going to say, you know, we've got this many folks, um, you know, we've got maybe a hundred developers, a few of them are super high priced architects, which are the ones that actually know the things that are critical to making this asset valuable over the next five years, and which ones can I substitute with the ones I've already got on payroll? Uh, same thing for sales, same thing for marketing, same thing for operations, uh, finance and accounting, all that's gone. Day one, right? Yep. That's just gonna get rolled into the mothership and uh, and, and replaced. So there's a- So Devin, let me, let me, hey Devin, let me interrupt you. Uh, because as I think this is a, a good place to talk about this particular question. Th there's some models out there where an acquirer will acquire somebody and fundamentally leave them as a standalone company for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And other acquirers will will integrate into the into the mothership as, as quick and fast as possible. Yep. Do you have thoughts on those two models? That's a great question. Um, so... The first one is a uh, is a high class a high class bet to be able to make. I'll put it that way. It's a luxury move to be able to make an acquisition and, and leave it fundamentally alone, um, because it, it means that for the most part you're not going to get those synergies uh, in terms of how the uh, how the P and L is is working. Um, there are a number of reasons that a large company will do that. Uh, we've done that uh, in, in parts as well. Um, and it's, it's usually because the business that you're acquiring is interesting, um, but maybe two steps tangential from your core. And the reason to leave it alone is to quite frankly, not break it. Because you know, if you bring it into the mothership, the day-to-day -day problems of whatever the core business is will uh, overshadow everything that that company is trying to do, right? So if if it's a longer range bet on the future, sometimes that'll happen. Um, if it's if it's closer to the core and it's something that really fits the existing 
uh, engine. And when I say engine, I mean the go-to-market engine of the company, right? They're the comp the you know the acquirer's ability to sell, the acquirer's reach into you know customers around the world, etc. You usually want to fold that in really quickly. Uh, otherwise, you end up with the potential for a lot of confusion within the the ranks. You end up with a lot of incentive problems, right? So if you're, you know, selling software to banks, well, are the existing sales reps supposed to sell the old stuff or the new stuff? And how do you incentivize the sales rep to sell the the new stuff if you've already got a sales force from the company you acquired? And now what happens if both those people happen to walk through the same door at the same time? <laughs> right. They just get an argument, right. right? It's better to get all that stuff out of the way. Everybody's on the same team. And, and move forward. And, and the best companies at this move at just blistering paces. Um, one of my friends had his software company acquired by a very large hardware and software company and had the view that it might be standalone for a little while and he'd have a chance to get used to it. He said he came back to work. You know, they, they had a nice uh, closing and, and celebration on Friday and he came to work <laughs> on Monday and his email address was changed. <laughs> the quicker you get it over with, the, the better. Because fundamentally, once this happens, an acquisition is, it's a little bit scary. It's, it's a little bit uh, confusing to employees at the acquirer and at the target. Your goal as a leader should be to, as fast as possible, get absolute clarity on everyone's roles and goals, and then get back to work. Yep. Yep. Just interesting you say that. Uh, for one of our, <clears throat> with one leg still in the VC business, we actually have a closing scheduled for later today. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, Monday morning, there will be certain employees who will be... Uh, in a different world. Yep. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Congratulations. That's good news. Yeah. But it is amazing to me how, how things that a person outside an acquisition wouldn't even think of are complicated and expensive that they are the software integration, right? The, the merging, the, the billing systems, the, all these things that seem like, Oh, it's no big problem. It's no big deal. Right. But it can take a lot of time and cost a lot of money. And then the cultural things, right? Oh, you're used to one leadership style and now you switch. Um, yep. It's fraught, right? With problems. And, you know, some of the data are what 50% or more of the acquisitions result in the acquiring companies losing, you know, the shareholder value goes down. Um, yep. Even though you've done your due diligence and you try to do all these things. Are there some, is there some learning that goes on? Are there some managers that once they've been through the integration process, kind of know how to do it better and know what to look for. And then the rookies get kind of, kind of hosed <laughs> because they're, they make a bunch of rookie mistakes or how much, how much in there is kind of this tacit knowledge of, of how to do one of these things. That's a great question and framing. I would, I would love to see the following answer printed in the press. Uh, the data that you reference would indicate that uh, unfortunately the people that have no clue how to do it, have billions of dollars to deploy. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're right the this the track record is Spotty is not great. Yeah. yeah it's not great um 
It's like it's like picking a spouse. The track record's like picking a spouse. <laughs> it's about fifty percent, right? right? More more people lose money on acquisitions than get divorced, or the other way around. I'm not sure, but yeah. It'd be interesting to to understand if there's a scale cutoff in the distribution curve, uh, and I bet it's towards the upper end, right, where where things get really ugly. Um, because at the lower end, right, if you acquire something for $10 million or whatever, 30, 40, 50, uh, you're really making a, a technology and portfolio acquisition. Um, those, I would assume, probably have a little bit better of a success rate, though harder to measure because you're betting on that being important in three, four, five years. Um, there's There are certainly firms that are much better at this, right? That that have a playbook for how they do acquisitions uh, and specialize in it. But if you look at, at Oracle, um, they're awesome at it, right? They're really, really- they do like one a month or something ridiculous like that, you know? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so there's certainly a discipline. Um, and I would say that that discipline has to come from the management team that's doing the acquiring. It can't come from outside consultancies. Uh, it's just too hard. And and you have to make tough decisions very often around personnel really quickly, really, really quickly. Uh, to your point, Mike, on uh, you know, IT systems and just other stuff that eats up capital and time, right? The faster you can bulldoze through those decisions, pick a direction and just go, right? Take the, take the closest good enough and, and move on rather than uh, deliberating ad nauseum, the more successful the integration will be. Uh, the cultural aspect is, um, is also tough to get right. So we, we did a, a very large, basically uh, acquisition and integration of two equal sized companies. Uh, and I spent nearly a year in the Netherlands, integrating our, our software divisions. Um, and it takes a lot of face time to create a new team, especially in, in this case, it was two teams that used to be fierce competitors. Our, our best go-to-market specialization was kicking the other one's butt, right? We were, we were right, now you're sleeping together, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you, you, you really have to, you know, once you identify the talent you wanna keep, uh, make the tough decisions and, and get rid of some folks. If there's someone who's clearly not going to get with the program and, you know, isn't moving quick enough, you got to take those hard decisions and, and trim quickly. But then you, you really got to spend a lot of time together, right? Like really understand the other company's point of view, um, build some relationships and trust. Otherwise, your uh, the time is ticking on your uh, business case, Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So let me ask you another question. Uh, if we think about internationally and we think about, you know, a, a worldwide acquisition strategy, what role do various different labor laws, uh, securities laws, customs, environmental laws, different countries, mm, environmental laws, et cetera, play into yeah. yeah, an acquisition? How, how does that what, what how does that resonate? Uh it resonates like a cloud over your decision-making process <laughs> that way. Um, and again, this one comes back to, to size. Uh, 
so it, it's less of an issue if you're if you're at the smaller end but as you start to you know get a a reasonable number of employees right you're in the dozens or hundreds um it's really important right it's really really important especially if you know that you're going to change something about the business right so for example uh, if there was a interesting technology company with 200 employees in France, and I knew that I wanted the technology, but I could run it out of my existing operations, I probably wouldn't acquire it because I know I'm going to pay the folks in France probably until I retire. You just, that's the way the labor laws work. I'm grossly simplifying, but um, it makes it very, very hard to get through the restructuring of your operations in certain countries. Um, and actually, you know, it's, it's a, it forces really suboptimal decision-making as well, right? There's somewhere between the American model of employment at will and, you know, call it the French model of highly protected workers. There's something rational in the middle that's good for a company and good for a worker. The two ends of the spectrum are actually bad for both. And the reason is, if you get to the end of the spectrum that's theoretically great for the worker, the only way that you can get through uh, what's called uh, you know, the, the workers' council is if you close an entire legal entity, right? And maybe mm-hmm. we're trying to rationalize half of a yeah. workforce. Well, 100% of the workforce is going to be the victim of the fact that the laws work the way they would work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 definitely challenging and it will uh, uh, it plays into how you think about your business case for how you generate value on the other side of the. Yeah. Yeah. So my last here's my last two questions. Maybe Mike has some more uh, question. Number one, if if you had advice for entrepreneurs who, you know, are starting a business or thinking about starting a business or have started a business and they want to get acquired. They, they, they've, they've heeded your advice earlier. They're not going to go the private equity route, right? They want to get acquired. What advice would you give them? Sure. Uh, so number one, um, I would make sure you really understand your potential list of, of acquisition, you know, suitors uh, and, and get to know them, right? You know, have, have them in your Rolodex, uh, do some joint sales with them, do some joint deals, whatever that might be. Um, you want to be careful that you don't waste tons and tons of time and effort in business development, aka expensing tons of dinners with no outcome. Uh, it's better to get really practical and, and, and tactical uh, rather than we're going to have a joint go-to-market program with all of these things, and we're going to negotiate a press release a quarter and blah, 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 blah. Forget it. Get to know one salesperson that understands what you do, understands what they do. Go see 10 customers and, and see if you can make something happen for real. Much better use of time, and it puts you onto their radar in a way where they really understand what the heck you're doing. Um, that's number one. Number two uh, as those conversations start to come in, right? Instead of talking to the usual salesperson or BD person that you do, if all of a sudden the COO or somebody else wants to have lunch, start to understand what their strategy is and why you might be interesting to them. Because then you can hone your story, 
uh, and, and explain your company in a way that resonates. And a big company, you know, has a lot of different reasons. It might be acquiring a, a smaller one. It might be that, you know, we see a differentiator versus our competitors, and we really just want that kind of sizzle effect of a new technology. Uh, it might be that we're trying to branch out into a new customer base that we don't have access to. But you need to understand those so that you're setting the stage for how your company plugs that gap for us today. Cool. Excellent. Uh, you, you actually answered my second question in your response to my first question. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, you got anything no, else? That, that's great. We're right at 30 minutes and I want to be careful of Devin's time. So maybe this is a good time to wrap it up. Um, it's been a pleasure, Devin, uh, and I wish you the best of success in your, uh, the near future and the long future with, uh, everything at Diebold Nixdorf. And, uh, we're uh, happy to, to, to talk with you and gain some really, I think, interesting insights on acquisitions versus venture capital. And in the world of trying to, to build your own company's innovation portfolio, uh, new technology portfolio through, um, going out there and, 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 uh, you know, balancing, developing something yourself versus buying something that's already on the market. So thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Always fun. Yep. Thanks, Evan. So Bela, that was really interesting. Um, within the startup kind of space is uh, an acquisition by a big company like what Devin is talking about. Is this a significant portion of the exits uh, that investors experience? That means when there's a cash out. Mike, it's the major, the, the vast majority of all sort of cash outs that happen through corporate sales or trade sales or acquisitions, as sometimes they're called. So, for example, in 2020, there were over 17,000 corporate acquisitions. Uh, this represents, you know, a major, major portion of all of the exits in the private equity uh, business. Uh, th these are not just private equity exits, but the point is that companies get purchased all of the time. In contrast to IPOs, which is what you always gets all the glory most of the times, there were 470 IPOs in 2020. And 2020 was a very strong IPO year. In some years, there's you know less than 100 IPOs. Some years, there have been less than 50 IPOs. So uh, IPOs uh, go up and down, as do uh, corporate acquisitions. Um, but corporate acquisitions are clearly uh, the vast majority of ways for entrepreneurs and founders uh, to get cash uh, into their pockets uh, by selling their business. Yeah. And, you know, you lose the business in a sense, right? Because you lose control to the company. Sometimes they keep you on. In some cases, the entrepreneur sticks around for a long time. In most cases, they don't. There's a consulting contract and then the entrepreneur fades away with a big a big cash out. But um, you can see that there's a lot more, as you said, acquisitions. It's a lot lower risk. Um, there's a lot more risk that happens as the, the entrepreneur is growing their successful business and scaling it to get it to the point where it can support an IPO. And um, if, you, if you read the business press a lot, you see a lot about companies that were running up to IPO and failed. Right. Either they couldn't make it to the kind of the stage that they needed to get that capital or something happened and the deal fell apart and they wound up getting bought anyways, but not for nearly as much money as they would have gotten um, in an IPO. And remember, in an IPO, yeah, the investor makes money, but so does the venture capital company. And so 
Um, you know, the interesting thing that Devin talked about is, hey, you can kind of cut out the middle person a little bit in this, right? And you can kind of cut the VCs out of the landscape a little bit if you take that acquisition a little earlier in the game before you might take the, the VC money. Um, and then you don't get the, um, you don't have nearly the same risk. You might not get as much money, certainly don't have that opportunity for the big payday at the end, but you get a lot of money. Um, and this business that you've built then can then become part of something bigger, right? And you can really scale globally um, in, in, is in some of the examples that Devin talked about. Uh, what did you take take from um, Devin's discussion about how um, at Diebold, um they made acquisitions and he made acquisitions? Kind of what, what did you thought, think was interesting from, from his perspective there? Yeah, I think there's some really good points here uh, that, that Devin brought up. And, and I think they're very generic points, meaning they're a, applicable across a, a lot of different types of acquisitions. I think one of the, the key things that the acquiring company wants to do is they want to take the business that you have, let's say you're the founder, and they want to be able to take that and leverage it and take advantage of their existing infrastructure, of the large company's existing infrastructure. So it's, I always talk about it as they want to take your business and, and they want to hit the gas with it, right? They really want to push on the gas pedal and accelerate things and take advantage of their existing sales organizations, their existing distribution networks, their manufacturing infrastructure, uh, their back office operations, uh, because that's how they can really quickly accelerate and grow the business. And if they're going to leverage that and take advantage of it, then your business needs to be somehow related to what they already do, right? Their existing sales force, you know, you want to be an other page in their catalog of things that they're selling to their customers and because they want to call on the same customers, right? You're at, so you're adding features or you're adding an other element or another capability to an existing product or platform they have because that's what makes the most sense. They don't have to retrain their sales force. They're not out calling on different customers because of, of what they now sell. Uh, but they're talking to the same customers and upselling them into more features and more products. Uh, it needs to fit in where, to, into their dis distributors, right? If they, if they use distributors, distributors carry certain types of products. So you want to get into those same types of distributors. Same thing with manufacturing. If, if you're making a product that needs to be manufactured, it's not a, a pure service, then, you know, does it fit into the existing flow of their manufacturing plant? Uh, do they have, does the large company have some excess capacity that you can now take over and fill their pipeline with? So those are all things that I think they, they look at. And that's what large companies typically look at when they make an acquisition. How can they leverage it? How can they step on the gas pedal and really accelerate this? And from your perspective, that's wonderful because it costs a ton of money to build out all of those things. It costs a ton of money to do to build a sales organization, a distribution network, manufacturing facilities, and it takes a lot of capital, right? So if you have to go raise that capital some other way uh, in order to fund that growth, then you're going to end up owning a smaller percentage of your business. And, you know, that's the thing you got to balance as an entrepreneur. Those are the challenging uh, decisions you need to make. Do I sell now to a larger company or do I try to build and grow all of this infrastructure myself with some help and by raising capital so that I'll get to a larger place? And all of those paths are, are challenging. They all have uh, uh, 
probabilities associated with their success. But uh, I think that for many people, being acquired by a larger company uh, is a great path. And it's an immediate exit for you, the entrepreneur. You're getting cash in your pocket uh, the day you sign the papers. Yeah, and you and I both have had experience with that, and it's a nice feeling, right? Like, yeah, maybe we could have held on and gone bigger, but it's pretty nice to be able to get a chunk of money for a bunch of your sweat equity with that reduces the risk, and now you can go do something else with it. And I know in your case, you, you know, you parlayed a couple of those into some really fun things and made a really nice life um, out of kind of doing that from taking that that right that check essentially right. or that money um, a little earlier. Um, and, and, and me too. And it's, it's, uh, it's not a bad thing. And I think there's this pride or something that you want to say, Oh, I want to, I want to be the CEO of the unicorn that, that goes IPO. But I think there's a lot to be said for, yeah, I put a bunch of work in, I got paid really well. And then I took that money and did a whole bunch of other cool things with it. Um, it, it's kind of neat too. Yeah. You often see people who sell to a larger company, uh, as we talked about with Devin, you know, sometimes the people don't go to work for a larger company at all. Uh, most of the times you get like a two year as a, as a typical sort of guarantee, you get a two year guaranteed job at the larger company if you're the founder of the small one or something. And sometimes people stay there and they have a great career and they enjoy it. But, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs are not cut out to work in large companies and, and they realize that. And after two years, they leave and then they take their money and they start another entrepreneurial endeavor. Right. You, you see that happen all of the time. You have these serial entrepreneurs. And just to be clear, if you decide to raise more venture capital or more private equity to fund your growth in sales, distribution, manufacturing, et cetera, there's still no guarantee that you're going to be at the head of that company because <laughs> your skill set may run out. And the people who put the capital in oftentimes have a disproportionate amount of control over decisions made in that company as compared to the size of their investment. So they're often the ones who are going to decide who's running that business. So um, there's risk in both pathways. Um, but in one pathway, uh, you do get uh, an exit or personal exit for yourself, meaning cash in your pocket. Uh, and then that gives you some freedom of action to do other things if you so desire. Yeah. And at least the times that I've kind of given people advice, I've always told them to take, take the money and go. Right. That, that the, there's so many other risks involved. And again, you and I have seen this a lot and you can read about it all through the media where the entrepreneur is forced out by the venture capital pre uh, people, pre IPO. And they need to be right. That, that they don't have the skill sets to take the business to the next level. And right. right when you sell when you sell to somebody like Devin and a company like like Diebold, um, that all that stuff is there. And it, and it should fit right in. If the company like Diebold has done a good job of here's our strategic identity, here's the fit of this acquisition, we know what we're going to do with it, it usually works out. And you still have some pride. Yeah, I, you know, look at what happened now. This thing that I made, the software that I built, product that I built got, got um, you know, is now part of a, an international network. So, yeah, something to think about. I think a really cool approach. I think, uh, I don't know, let's say time to wrap it up, Bela. Yeah, I think so. Let's wrap this one up, Mike. Great. So takeaways today, as an entrepreneur with a successful startup, you have to remember that if you use venture capital to finance your business, right, you take that next step to grow and scale, you're either going to go IPO or you're going to be sold to a company like Diebold or you're going to fail, right? There's really just three paths, okay? And you want to avoid that failure one. We, we both have some scars there, right? You kind of want to avoid the failures and you learn. 
Um, going IPO is just really uncommon and there's a lot of risks along the way. Um, but being sold to a company is pretty typical and, and, and pretty normal. The question is, do you do it earlier or later? Do you do it earlier and get a bigger share or do you do it later after your share has been diluted? Um, and that's kind of a, a really interesting question. Um, the entrepreneur might give out the opportunity to have a huge payout, um, but they get a great return earlier in the process with less risk. So there's costs and benefits to both a VC investment and a corporate acquisition. And I thought Devin did a great job of comparing and contrasting these two forms of funding approaches for entrepreneurs as the company grows and gets ready to kind of um, uh, either stand as an IPO or, um, or, 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 get, or get bought. Um, I guess the other option, and let's go back to talking about bootstrapping and trying to do it on your own. This is where a lot of companies don't have to make this choice of either Devon or IPO, right? It's, you know, I bootstrapped it. I, I've raised my own capital through existing sales and, and through my own investment. Um, and then and then I don't I don't need to do a, a, B or C. There's option D, which is just to continue along um, as a as a healthy growing concern. Um, but that usually only happens when the the company is self-financing. It doesn't happen when there's a VC investment involved. Listeners, thanks for joining us today. We hope you found this episode with Devin Watson both interesting and thought-provoking. If you have questions about what we've discussed, please feel free, as always, to get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And please do hit that follow button on your podcasting application. Um, so until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Sounds great to me, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. I look forward to seeing you next time.